Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, David Sanborn, grew up in a family of missionaries and from an early age was taught to have a personal relationship with Christ. He pursued a career in theater, found passion, however, in playing biblical roles, and eventually felt that God was calling him to something more. He eventually became a minister. But his studies of John chapter 6 showed him where the Spirit was guiding him, and that was into full communion with the Catholic Church. David right now serves as a youth minister for St. Ignatius uh, Hickory Catholic Church in Forest Hill, Maryland. And you can follow him at uh, uh, stignatiushickory.org. David, good to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about your upbringing. Your mom and dad, as I understand it, um, were part of the old Jesus movement. Yeah, that's right. How'd yeah, that happen? What story do you want? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to go back there because I passed through the church for five years. And uh, it had its origins in the Jesus movement. I was the second generation pastor for it. But uh, so, why don't you yeah, tell me a little bit about their background and how they got involved in knowing knowing sure. Christ? Yeah, well, neither of them had much of a religious background. My mom had grown up in a, a completely secular home, and my father had grown up in a kind of a nominal Methodist home. And uh, when he was in college, he decided that he was going to take uh, religion. You know, he had to take six credit hours of either philosophy or religion. And so he decided that he was going to take Old Testament and New Testament survey and go through the Bible and find all of the errors and the mistakes and the inconsistencies. And he studied the Bible as hard as he could to try to find them, and as a result got the highest grades in both classes and came to the conclusion that this is truth. <laughs> but he thought, but I, you know, I want to have fun with my life, still kind of thinking that Christianity is primarily about the rules, right? Right, Instead of right. Primarily about this incredible sonship and daughtership that we have in the kingdom of God. And so he uh, decided he was going to just be like the thief on the cross and just commit his life to Christ and repent of his sins just before he died. <laughs> as, though, <laughs> as though that's in our control. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so, right. But uh, he was with my—he he eventually married my mother— and she was a West End actress in London, and her brother was uh, being inducted into the Mormon Church, and so he was being baptized for each of his dead relatives, yep. as many as he could handle at the London Mormon Tabernacle. And she went running into the lobby crying, and my dad ran out after her and said, Honey, what's, what's wrong? And she said, This is wrong. I just, it just feels really? so wrong. But how can I tell him it's wrong? Because I don't know God. Right, right. And right there in the lobby of the London Mormon Tabernacle, uh, Dad shared the charisma with my mom, and she was so moved uh-huh. and touched by uh, the reality and the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that she gave her heart to the Lord right there. That's beautiful. And uh, he was so convicted by his own words that he says that he was the second person he ever led to the Lord. <laughs> after he committed his life to Jesus. That's great. <laughs> and um, did, By the way, did she ever go into any more depth as why she... In- had that impression, that epiphany, that intuition, that uh, this you baptizing... You know, she never did. Yeah. She, she just sensed yeah. that there was just something that was just a sense of disrest in her spirit yep. about yep. this. Okay. And um, she, she had been long seeking after God, and even praying, saying, God, I know there must be a God out there, and, and I just want you to know that I want to live for you if that's possible. And so there was this, this amazing sense of, um, of longing and seeking... And, uh, of course, we see over 70 times in the Bible where it says, if you seek me, you will find me.
behind me. And one of the most consoling, those are the most consoling yeah. passages, I think. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah, and, and of I course, agree. And of course, of course Paul uh, quotes that in Romans, <clears throat> quoting a time when the Israelites, no one was seeking after God. It was mm-hmm. just really... Uh, a serious time, and and really showing the um, the fact that the impetus really is with God. <clears throat> but uh, I really saw a number of years ago that John Calvin was really taking that to an extreme uh, when he said that you know we can't possibly seek God. There's nothing that we can do. It's it's all Him. He just chooses who He wants to save and who He doesn't want to save. And and I thought it's just that's inconsistent with right. with First Peter that says that He desires that all be saved. And sure. and Acts chapter 15 that says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be right. saved. Right. And over 70 verses in the in the Old Testament that say all who seek will find me. Right. Right. And so of course the impetus is with God. But but um, my theology began to. Really Really crumble a few years ago when I realized um, that you know you can't put pit one verse against um, over seventy verses in the right. Bible and make a theology out of it. Well, let's let's uh, so you, so your parents then had an experience of you know encounter with Christ. They then got involved in a church or a movement. What did they do? Yeah, so they they just plugged right in. They were so excited about their faith. They began to. Uh, help. They actually started a children's program at the church they were attending. Okay. Um, they still were very reticent about the idea of miracles, though. My dad had seen a couple of quote-unquote faith healers yes. that, that he just saw as charlatans okay. mm-hmm. until I was a year old, and I had a terrible fall down a flight of, I think it was 20 steps, slammed my head against the cement wall mm. in the basement downstairs, and uh, was unconscious. My dad ran, ran downstairs, put the a mirror up against up against my nose to see if you were breathing. If I was breathing. Yeah. I wasn't breathing. I had no pulse. Uh, I was turning quickly blue, and I had a massive knot on my head. And as he began to make preparations with mom to to get me to the hospital. My brother, who was about four years old at the time, tugged at my dad's pants, and my dad was saying, not right now, son, not right now. Can't you see your brother's in trouble? And my brother said, Daddy, when you have a little hurt, you go to God, but when you have a big hurt, you go to Jesus. (laughs) And I don't know where he got that, but through, uh, presumably through the Holy Spirit, um, even at that age. Yeah. Um, and my dad was so busy getting me ready that he didn't have time to pray. So he said, well, son, fine, you pray. You pray. And while he was getting me ready, and my brother apparently prayed just a very simple prayer, Dear Jesus, please heal my baby brother. In mm. Jesus' name, amen. And suddenly my dad watched. He heard me start to breathe. He saw. He visibly saw the knot on my head shrink down, saw the color return to my face, Mm. all in a matter of a couple of seconds. And my eyes opened, and I popped up, and I said, I'm hungry. And my dad, who was administrator at George Washington University Hospital, you know, he he knew that that the first thing that happens when someone goes into shock is that they lose their appetite. Appetite, And so here, I had no remnants even of the shock of it all. Mm. I was just completely restored through the power of prayer of a little child. 
And that was just a game changer for my parents. And um, from that moment on, they said, okay, we are all in. Whatever the Holy Spirit has for us, we are all in. When did you first become aware that you were in a home in which uh, mom and dad were deeply committed Christians? Well, it's interesting because I just didn't know any other reality than a home where prayer wasn't just before dinner, Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. before bed. Um, matter of fact, uh, my my dad really encouraged us that this was the most incredible thing we could possibly do with our lives, the, the idea of prayer. And so, um, whereas we started out a little hesitant to want to pray, it quickly became the culture in our home that when dad would say, who would like to pray, um, the first person that raised their hand got to pray. As, a pray, as opposed to other circles I've been in where the last person to raise their hand has to pray. You know? <laughs> um, and we were just constantly singing Christian songs. My mom wanted to keep an eye on us, so she would always invite all the kids from the neighborhood to our home. Mm-hmm. And then she would tell them Bible stories, and we would sing Christian songs together. She started a Bible club. And this was just the reality that, that I knew. As a matter of fact, my earliest memory goes back to about the age of three when, uh, matter of fact, I distinctly remember it was before my four, fourth birthday, and the Sunday school teacher said if anyone would like to commit their lives to Jesus, they can do that now. And my thought was, I already have. Jesus is everything to me. I mm-hmm. love him with all mm-hmm. my heart. And... um and I never quite was able to reconcile that as an evangelical, when people would say, so tell me about your conversion experience, right. Right. You know, which is a very valid question to ask, but I just didn't have one. Right. All I knew is that every day of my life, for as long as I can remember, I've always known His love. I've always known His voice. I've always known His presence in my life and just wanted to live for Him with all that I am often failing, of course, but, um, but that was, has just been the, the, the heartbeat of my life. And how, old, and it, were, mm-hmm. how old were you when you and your parents went on to the mission field? So when I was about four or five, it was, I think it was just before my fifth birthday, my parents gathered us together as a family and said, okay, we're gonna, uh, we really believe that God is calling us to the missions. You know that we've been talking about this for a number of years. Uh, and, and they had always whenever there was an opportunity to bring a, a visiting missionary to our home for dinner, they would do that. Mm-hmm. We would be regaled by testimonies of what God is doing around the world. So we were definitely excited about missions. But they said, if we are called to missions, that means that you're called to missions because we're a team. God has called us to be your parents and you to be our children. And so we're not going unless you pray about it and you say that you have a call, which is incredible. I, don't, I just don't know where they got the chutzpah to put their future into the hands of little kids. But we prayed about it and said, yeah, let's do it. And so we had buy-in from the very start. Mm-hmm. This, was, this was our call as much as it was our parents' call. And my brother said, yeah, God's going to send us to be missionaries to Hawaii. And my, <laughs> my parents just thought that was hilarious. Like, Son, nobody goes to be missionaries to Hawaii. That's where people vacation, right. not missionary. And, and I had no idea what, what Hawaii was. I really don't think my brother at the age of, six or seven, had a clue what Hawaii was. But he said that we're going to Hawaii, so my brother and sister and I, every night before we went to bed, we ended our prayers with, and Lord, when we go to the mission field, send us to Hawaii, not having any clue what kind of 
delightful pleasures we were heaping upon ourselves and wanting to live in a tropical paradise. <laughs> so anyway, um, when I was uh, about a year and a half later, uh, when I was just before my seventh birthday, I think, or let's see, yeah, just before my uh, sixth birthday, my parents gathered us together as a family and said, well, you know, maybe God would actually like to tell us when we're supposed to go. You know, we never know. It's it's possible that he doesn't, but maybe maybe it's something that he wants us to know now. And so let's just pray. Let's ask. And 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 they said, you know, there is no junior Holy Spirit, so you can hear God's voice just as clearly as we can, um, because you are baptized believers. And so they said, let's just go ahead and pray about whether God has called you to the mission field, called when we're going to go. And so we all prayed about it, and we all went to a corner. We wrote the dates down, and we put the dates in the hat, never having talked about when we might leave. And all five pieces of paper said January 1st, 1980. That's fantastic. We're going to come back, continue conversation with David Sanborn, former missionary, and uh, we'll learn more about him, his family, and his coming into full communion in the Catholic faith. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, David Sanborn, sharing with us his testimony of coming into full communion in the Catholic Church and the, the role, of course, that his entire family played, his mother and father and their deep commitment to Christ, their commitment to the mission field. And um, <laughs> they all prayed, and they all came up with the exact same date for when they should go out into mission territory, and that was January 1st, 1980. So, David, please continue the story. So at the end of September 1980, my dad handed in his resignation at George Washington University Hospital, and on the spot, they offered to double his salary if he would stay, and he thought, man, I should have offered to quit years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, a few weeks later, Word Records approached my mom with a really wonderful recording contract, and she turned it down, and they said, why are you turning this down? And she said, well... Um, we're going to the mission field. And they said, oh, really? That's wonderful. Where? She said, I don't know. They said, well, with what organization? She said, I don't know. (laughs) And they said, but you're turning down this contract for the I don't know. And she said, yep. Wow. And we just continued to pray about a number of different organizations, but just didn't sense a piece about God leading uh, with, with any particular organization until... About halfway through December of 1979, my dad is sitting in the office of this organization called Christian Service Corps, which connects people who want to be missionaries with mission organizations. And Dave, the guy, the director, was saying to my dad, Art, you of all people, you as an administrator at one of the world's leading hospitals, you handle millions of dollars, and you know better than anyone, that the worst decision you can make is no decision at all. You've got to make a decision. And my dad said, I know, I know, but every time we start to make a decision on one of these, we get such a strong sense that it's wrong, that it's not God's will. Um, And just then, uh, Dave got a phone call, long-distance phone call, back when long-distance actually meant something. And he said, do you mind if I take this? And uh, dad said, sure, go ahead, go ahead. 
and it was an organization called YWAM, Youth mm-hmm. of the Mission, right. and they wanted to know if Dave knew of any hospital administrators who were interested in missions. <laughs> and Dave said, oh. in all my years of doing this, I've only ever come across one, and he is sitting across from me right now. Would you like to talk to him? <laughs> and so my dad talked to them and was really excited about the vision, came home, told us about it, and actually something something else really amazing happened at this point. My dad was asking around, does anyone know what YWAM is? And, and no one at this point in, in our circles had ever heard of YWAM, had ever heard of Youth of the Mission. He mentioned it to his mom, and his mom said, oh, yes, you know what? There was a guy named Lauren Cunningham. Mm-hmm. I think he had something to do with YWAM. He's actually the founder. Right. Um, and he was on the 700 Club on the radio, and I recorded it on a tape. However... In the fire that uh, just destroyed half of our house, uh, all the tapes were in that fire, and every one that I've checked has, has just been ruined. I haven't checked this one yet. You can test it if you want. And so my parents uh, listened to it. They, it was just this warped, brown, uh, melted thing. But they put it in the cassette player, and it played perfectly, and it was Lauren Cunningham's vision of reaching the world for Jesus. And it was just, uh, my parents just knew that this was something they wanted to be a part of, that they were supposed to be a part of. They listened to the tape several times all through the night, over and over again, until it was time for Dad to shower and head to work. And my mom uh, had to get us ready for school, and then she had her women's Bible study. And she said to her women's Bible study, she said, you have got to listen to this tape. It's amazing. So she put it into the cassette player, and this time it didn't work. It was just all warbled. And she said, oh, maybe we need to try a different player. She tried three different players, and it didn't work. They opened it up, and it was all ashes. It had been destroyed in the fire. Wow. And yet somehow miraculously it had played um, enough for them to be able to listen to it all through the night and it was just yet again another one, sign one more confirmation yeah so exactly. at what point do you begin to take I mean you're you're the you're the child of your parents at this point and thank God they're so uh, they live so transparently in their faith you're beginning you're seeing the fruit of their faith and you're participating in it when do you begin uh, serious, uh, independent Christian thinking and, and mission? Mm, that's, that's a good question. Well, we had, um, it was interesting growing up in YWAM because it is an ecumenical mission. Yep. Uh, we don't have that many Catholics, but there are even Catholics right. in the mission. Yeah. And, and by the way, so, the church I pastored, uh, we had two missionaries who were associated with Youth with a Mission. So YWAM oh, is, not, is, I'm yeah. familiar with it. And they, yeah. they are, they're much more open to Catholics than a lot of evangelical mission uh, organizations. Yeah, that's really true. And and my dad and mom had this mentality that we haven't arrived. You know that that there is yeah. You know, quoting Shakespeare from Hamlet, there is more in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. And so there was this idea that uh, we're going to continue studying and studying and studying, and we're never going to doubt the basic tenets of the Kerygma. That is absolutely clear. There are certain things in the Bible that are absolutely black and white, but then there are other things that various theologians um, debate, 
And let's just kind of keep an open mind about those things and, and see what conclusions we can come to individually. And, and so there was just lots of, lots of debate, lots of discussion about the, the kind of the more uh, questionable uh, tenets, uh, the, the, the theology that various denominations disagree with. And uh, when I was in college, I was really faced with the um, with with some Anglican friends saying, you know, how can you see John six any differently than that Jesus is saying, this is my body, this is my flesh? How can you see it any differently than that? And um, and I, I really came to the conclusion over the years that I really couldn't see it any differently. Mm-hmm. Than okay. the way that that Jesus said it, he he didn't apologize for it. Matter of right. fact, he lost all of his followers over that incredibly bold declaration. Mm-hmm. And so, one by one, my theology, my my kind of basic Wheaton College theology uh, that I had ascribed to, various tenets were getting knocked over one by one. I see. Uh, the idea of double predestination was getting knocked over through reading the scriptures. Mm-hmm. The idea of Eucharist being just a symbol was getting knocked over through my reading of the scriptures. Um, another big one was uh, baptism. It was actually while I was a pastor, and you know I was involved in baptizing people, and I was reading First Peter three twenty one, which says that baptism saves us, and it really shocked me because <laughs> because even Acts chapter two, which tells the importance of baptism. It says, um, repent and be baptized. And evangelicals tend to really hang on that word, which is an incredibly important word. But but at least that's in there. But in but Peter said, First Peter three twenty one. He just said, "Baptism saves us." I was like, "Whoa, whoa, no, wait, Peter! How you careless! Can't be right? <laughs> How <laughs> careless what is you're he saying there? It's really careless, exactly. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but um, I also began to really struggle as a pastor because I was the associate pastor, and they were working on a succession plan to have me become the senior pastor in a few years. As a senior pastor was preparing to retire, he wanted to pass on his mantle to me, and I was already doing a bulk of the Sunday preaching. And I became more and more nervous about being, well, essentially the Pope of our church, right? because we didn't have a mother church. And the thought that the buck stops with me, even with a a wonderful... uh, system of accountability through eldership, it really made me nervous, and it really, it just felt wrong. It felt wrong for me to be the leader of the movement, for there to be no church over me, for there to be no one really over me. And the thought, too, that I was a part of a church that had only existed for a few decades and could very likely cease to exist after I died, I wanted to be a part of a church that was still going to be around hundreds of years after I died. And so mm-hmm. all of these questions were really plaguing me when I met a beautiful Catholic girl who loved Jesus, was passionate about Jesus. She, had, uh, she was working for the USCCB and had been discerning for a number of years with the Dominicans, uh, decided that she wasn't called to be a sister, but she was called to be a lay Dominican. Mm-hmm. And her love for Jesus was just so contagious. And 
we found that a lot of our theology we were on the same page about, uh, but there were a few things that obviously we weren't on the same page about, and one of those things was was uh, apostolic succession, mm-hmm. the authority of the Pope. And I, I shared with her what I believed, what I had been taught, which is that uh, the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome was something that had been imposed on the other churches under Constantine's rule. And she said, well, uh, that's interesting that you say that, um, because that's not what St. Ignatius of Antioch or Irenaeus of Leon or St. Clement of Rome say. Right. And I was like, who's it, of what's it, of, of where, what, who, what are you talking about? And she said, why don't you just go read them? And I said, well, this isn't going to change what I think about the Bible. She said, no, 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 I'm not saying that they have absolute um, irrefutable authority. What I'm saying is that they were around the time of the Apostles, and you might, you might care what the disciples of the Apostles had to say. And I said, well, I didn't even know these writings existed. Right, right. And so I went and I'm reading them, and it's blowing me away because it's talking about infant baptism, and it's talking about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist on a level that I hadn't quite uh, really been able to intellectually assent to yet. It was talking, most of all, the thing that really toppled me was it was talking about the primacy of the seat of Peter in Rome, the Bishop of Rome, and even talking about Eucharist, where, where I'd, I'd come to the conclusion that, yeah, Eucharist is more than just a symbol. There really is something something tangible about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. But I thought that was just any Eucharist at any church of any denomination. And here is St. Ignatius of Antioch, who had been discipled by the Apostles, who was saying that the Eucharist does not transubstantiate into the presence of Christ without apostolic succession. And so this was just kind of blowing my mind, making me incredibly dizzy, throwing off my equilibrium, and I didn't know what to do with all of this. Hmm. Can you uh, stay with me another segment? Absolutely. Okay, we'll come back and continue the story. I'm talking with David Sanborn, uh, grew up in a family of missionaries, and we're talking about his own uh, search for a deeper relationship with Christ, and also to bring his life into conformity with what the scriptures taught and how now he's awakening to the Apostolic Fathers and uh, what this may mean for him in the future. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for being with me. We continue talking with David Sanborn, who uh, is talking about his experience growing up in a deeply committed evangelical home, a family of missionaries, and now eventually as a young man, beginning to read the Apostolic Fathers uh, on his own and finding out that first generation uh, after the Apostles held to certain truths, which were certainly not common among 20th and 21st century evangelicals. Did you have many friends, David, who were warm towards Catholicism? Uh, I wouldn't say warm necessarily. I would say maybe open to at least dialoguing with them. Sure. Um, unfortunately, for the most part, when I was in theater especially, uh, the Catholics that I encountered 
were not ones who were vibrantly living yeah. out their faith right, in, right. A, in a very obvious way. Yeah. And really, I saw it as my goal to convert them, not necessarily with the goal of converting them from Catholicism. I just didn't see them as practicing Christians yeah. at all yeah, right. in, in a lot of ways. As a matter of fact, I recently heard that one of my friends whom I helped bring into the faith he found out that I'm Catholic, and himself being a cradle Catholic, he was furious about it. He's like, oh no, David's fallen away from the faith. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I find that that's often, often the case, that yeah. the, the evangelicals that are the most antagonistic towards the Catholic faith are those who grew up in a semblance of Catholicism, right. but weren't introduced to what Catholicism truly is. And that's, for me, why the catechism of the Catholic Church is such a gift, because I can say to them when they come back at me with various tenets that they think are Catholic, and I can say, no, that's actually not what the Catholic Church teaches. And they say to me, well, how can you tell me what the Catholic Church teaches? You've only been in a short period, and I spent 18 years growing up in the Catholic Church. And right. I say, well, you know what? If it goes against the catechism of the Catholic Church, then it's not what the Church teaches. You may have even had a priest teach you that, but that is not true Catholic theology if it goes against the catechism. So it's just, I feel like JP2 has given us such a gift in it. Uh, And matter of fact, that was a big deal for me, because when I was discerning the Catholic faith, that was my litmus test for the things that I had been told the Catholics believe, that I had been told even by some Catholics that Catholics believe, and to find out what is Catholicism, what does it really teach, what has the magisterium truly handed down as the tradition. And I opened it up expecting to read some dusty old book, and from page one, I just had tears streaming down my face at the beauty of it. Yeah. It's often the case that those raised within the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church don't uh, always uh, reflect what the Church teaches. I returned to the Catholic Church in 1992, and I was left the pastorate to become Catholic, but I'll tell you, it was difficult during those years before the Catechism was out. And so you're right, the Catechism has helped tremendously in clarifying for people what the Church actually teaches. A lot of people who end up coming into full communion with the Catholic Church have a period of time that I call no man's land, where they're not quite committed to any particular evangelical community or tradition, but they're not quite ready to, you know, become Catholic. And they're still, I don't know, weighing certain things. Did you go through a time like that? A fairly short period, actually, because once I saw that apostolic succession, that the primacy of the chair of Peter, once I saw that that was something that went back to the original church, I realized I had no choice in the matter. And that was really, you know, for the non-denominational movement, that's really kind of one of the major banners, one of the major heralding cries is, let's get back to the early church. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to what church was originally supposed to be. And so you're always in search of this, like, how do we conform our services? And, you know, finding the writings of Justin Martyr was amazing, because he he shared exactly what a worship service or a mass actually looked Mm -hmm. like in the... in the early church, uh, but you're just constantly trying to find clues, not having any clue that all along 
the early church actually <laughs> still exists, and it's around the corner, and it's called Saint something or other, <laughs> right. Catholic Church, right. you know? Right. And so for me, that was the smoking gun. I, I realized that there were certain things, like I wasn't sure yet, at one point of discernment, am I going to feel comfortable praying the Hail Mary? Am I going to feel comfortable praying a rosary? But even before I got to that point of seeing the beauty in that, I was studying up in, um, in those early um, letters from St. Ignatius of Antioch, specifically uh, Clement of Rome and Irenaeus. Those mm-hmm. are the three that were the biggest for me. Um, and seeing clearly these letters pointing to the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, um, I realized that was the smoking gun for me, that whatever else I didn't quite ascribe to yet, I just had to take on faith that the church knew better than I did, right. um, because uh, because if this is true, if this is true that this is the church that Christ founded, that was the church that the gates of hell would not prevail against, then this is what I had to ascribe to. And it, it kind of came down to uh, a metaphor that I thought of. My dad wrote a really wonderful book called A Walking Miracle, and I just imagined what it would be like if someone came to me and said, hey, David, I heard you talking about uh, a passage in your dad's book, and, um, you know, I disagree with you. Um, I, I think you're wrong with what you said, um, what you think that your dad really meant by that. <laughs> this is, I, I spent a lot of time, just hours and hours in a study thinking about it, and I realized this is actually what your dad meant. Right. And I would say, are you crazy? I knew my dad. I walked with my dad. You've never even met my dad. How can you possibly think that just, thinking in a study, you could come up with the truth about what what my dad actually meant. And I realized that that was the kind of arrogance that I was coming to the Church Fathers with, the early Church Fathers, saying, listen, Irenaeus, I know you walked with Polycarp, or walked with John. Listen, Clement, I know you walked with Peter. Ignatius, I know you walked with John, and and presumably Peter as well, but, you know, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just absolutely outrageous. And so once I realized that the, um, the Bishop of Rome was the, the Holy See, the Vicar of Christ, um, I just realized I was going to have to lay everything down and just take it on faith that God would show me in time, which he did, every single one of those tenets. Now, um, your, your dad uh, wrote Walking Miracle, and that's, that's uh, a book dealing with uh, the missionary future of Asia, if I'm right. And... Mm-hmm. Did did he was he did he walk with you in this experience of uh, becoming Catholic? Did he did you guys stay close on this? I I did talk to them a fair amount. Um, there was a lot that I I was still struggling with to come to terms with. Yeah, and so I kind of wanted to kind of make up my mind about certain things before yeah. I began to dialogue with them. Sure, um, sure. Understandable. But uh, interestingly enough, when I when I realized that this was the church Christ founded, literally, and, and this is <laughs> this is to my shame, but but when when I came to the conclusion that um, that apostolic succession was true, that this is the church that Christ founded, um, my response first was to call up this beautiful Catholic girl, Victoria, that I had been interested in dating, but I had laid it down uh, for the sake of my faith, you know. Uh Um, I called her up, and my words were, well, whether I want to or not, I've got to become Catholic. (laughs) 
Wow. Wow. <laughs> How'd she respond? She laughed. <laughs> she laughed. She said, well, give it to God. You trust God, right? I said, yeah. She said, well, we'll trust God. I said, I'm like, okay, but man, this <laughs> is not the conclusion I was hoping to come to. I mean, quite honestly, one of the reasons that I was studying the Catechism of the Catholic Church was so that I could help show her the error of her ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I read through the Catechism and realized that it's truth. It's beauty. And yeah. so when I finally came to the conclusion, um, in a more peaceable way, in a more um, embracing what God had for me, a way, realizing I was giving up my credentials, I was giving up my ministry career, I was giving up um, all of that, um, I called up my parents and I said, Mom, Dad, I've got something that I need to share with you but I don't want a response tonight. I'd rather you spend tomorrow fasting and praying about it, and then if you could call me back tomorrow and tell me what you think. They said, of course, son, yeah, tell us whatever it is. And I said, I'm going to join the Catholic Church. And they said, okay, love you, talk to you tomorrow, hung up. (laughs) (laughs) They called back the next night, and I just had such a sense that they hear God's voice that he's going to lead them, he's going to show them, he's at least going to show them what's happening in my life right now. And they called back and they said, son, we don't know how how to explain it, but we've just been getting confirmation after confirmation after confirmation today that this is of God, that we are not to interfere. As a matter of fact, if you ever start scratching your head and saying, this is crazy, what am I thinking, and you start to doubt it, call us and we'll encourage you to keep going. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's tremendous. It it really is. It's 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 such a gift, such a grace. And um, so I said to the um, the senior pastor at my church, I said, I really, I am discerning becoming Catholic, and I I feel like I need a couple of weeks to discern this. Um, I had already begun receiving instruction through uh, Father. Uh, Thomas Vanderwoody at a church called Holy Trinity in Gainesville, and um, a priest by the name of uh, Father Dominic Legg at, at the Dominican House of Studies, and uh, his his advice was that I take two weeks on retreat to discern this. Yeah. And so I asked yeah. the senior pastor if I could go on retreat and discern this, and he said, yeah, go, let the Holy Spirit set you straight. <laughs> of course, the Holy Spirit did set me straight, but not in the way that he was hoping. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Um, so I went on retreat. I went to a Steubenville conference. I went to Coming Home Network retreat, and I went on a silent retreat, all in a period of two weeks. Wow. And it was at the Coming Home Network retreat that we were doing a Lectio Divina on First Corinthians chapter 11, talking about the Eucharist. And I really began walking through it, and what came to mind as I was meditating on it was Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham offers Isaac on the mm-hmm. altar. And I said, God, I'm willing to give up my credentials. I'm willing to give up my community even. I'm willing to give up my friends, Lord. But the one thing that I, I'm just struggling to give up is ministry. I love ministry. Right. I love right. I love getting paid to study the Word of God and share it with people and share God's love with people 24-7 for living. That Just the thought of giving that up is breaking my heart. Yeah. But I trust you. And so I need to lay it on the altar the way Abraham 
laid and Isaac on the altar. So did the Lord give you a sense that you're going to be fruitful in ministry as a Catholic? When this is exactly what he shared. At that point, that moment, what I realized was that Abraham didn't just get Isaac back. He got the Paschal Lamb, the promise of the Paschal Lamb. God himself would provide the Lamb. And I realized that's what I was getting back. I was getting the promise of the Paschal Lamb. Yeah. And then if God wanted me to minister, that if I was supposed to minister, that God wants me to reach people more than I do. Yeah. Yeah. And the beautiful thing is when I came into the church, that's exactly what happened. I, I got an offer to be youth and young adult minister at this wonderful parish, St. Ignatius Sicri in Forest Hill, Maryland, with a wonderful pastor, Monsignor Jim Barr. And it's just been, it's just been beyond what I what I could have uh, asked for. It, it's so much more than what I laid down. David, that's tremendous, and we'll talk again, uh, Lord willing. And uh, yeah, sounds good. I, I want to stay in touch, and I'm glad that uh, Marcus and Coming Home Network had a role to play in all of this. We'll talk again, I'm sure. Thanks so much. Sounds good. Thanks, Al. Again, David Sanborn, youth minister for St. Ignatius Hickory Catholic Church, and uh, we'll be back, no doubt, to talk more about what the Lord is doing. In his experience, I'm Al Cresto.